on the education side, there's the potential to make it more available to a wider audience in the same way that you would deliver medicine to people in a epidemic. Bitcoin is the medicine to that problem, to the fiat standard problem. If you can't make the information any easier to digest, you're going to have a really hard job getting a lot of people to swallow it. The whole idea of permissionless agency that I'm starting up is to make information taste better. Welcome back to the Freedom Footprint Show, the Bitcoin philosophy show with Knut Svanholm and me, Luke the Sudofin. And today we have another returning guest, Angelo Morgan Summers. He's the author of Do Bitcoin, and now he's running this new video agency called Permissionless that we're going to talk to him about. So Angelo, great to have you on again. Welcome back to the Freedom Footprint Show. Incredible to be back. Thank you. Yeah, good to have you here, Angelo. Um, so what has this year, last year been like for you? Like, um, what are the main takeaways and what are, we, what are you working on at the moment? So yeah, it's been a, it's been a year. Um, it's been busy, busy, busy. I sort of spent most of the time working on, on the YouTube channel for Profess Bitcoins. Um, so I was producing educational videos, which was great experience for me to, to sort of get better at my, my video stuff, because that's always been my main hobby on the side. But also just to like whack your brain a little bit and try and find new ways to explain things. A big, I think it was, was it Sigmund Freud that had that quote, if you can't explain it to a five-year-old, you don't understand it or something like that. That's the approach I tried to take with learning anything. And so when you're producing videos that are aimed at like as wide a net audience as possible, it really makes you have to sort of think how you can take these complex ideas that often hide behind highly jargon-like language and then try to, one, visualize them in the, med the, video, the medium of video and also just explain them in words that the average person will understand. Um, so I was doing that for a while and yeah, it was a lot of work, but really fulfilling as well because it's Bitcoin. And so, yeah, what about you guys? Well, we've been doing this <laughs> amongst other things. But is is the fast Bitcoin's uh, channel still up? Can we still see the, see the videos? Yeah, the channel is still up. Um, the videos are still there. The company isn't, unfortunately. I don't want to yap my mouth on too much about that. I don't know what I can and can't say, so I better shut my mouth. Um, but yeah, the the channel is still there, and so the the videos, like ghosts, still exist on the internet, and you can still watch them. So that's a uh, that's good. Yeah, they're hi highly recommended. I I love those videos. I mean, you're a really good explainer. And yeah, you do you do it with eyebrows. Uh, that's how how I'd explain it. There's uh, some uh, hidden humor in in all of it, and I, I love it. Um, yeah, yeah. I was gonna say I had somebody message me the other day. I'm um, an old friend who I was trying to to orange pill for ages and convince him that um you know he should sell all of his his crypto tokens and everything, and he just wasn't hearing it. And he just messaged me after not hearing from him for months. Like I sold all of my Ethereum and all of my crypto and put it in Bitcoin. I was like, what? Finally, great, but why? Like, how, how come you've suddenly had this? He was like, it was your proof of stake video. And I was like, yes. So that's a win for me. I've, I've, I've converted one person. So all of the efforts were worth it as far as I'm concerned. You probably converted way more than one. I mean, we, we can never know how, how much impact these things have, but uh, I suspect they have more impact than we can imagine. And if we orange pill someone who becomes something later on, then, well, there you go. Uh, that's network effect education or whatever. So, so you, you visualize the ideas first. So, so if someone asks you, what is Bitcoin? How do you visualize that and explain it to them? Uh, that is a, a very awkward question um, because almost, so the Bitcoin, it's like, how would you visualize 
Bitcoin, the network is very different because that's quite clearly, you just have a network diagram. But then how do you visualize an actual Bitcoin is awkward because, you know, the only reason you see things is because there's some substance there for light to reflect from. But uh, Bitcoin is like an endpoint of information of, of matter because there is no actual Bitcoin. You can't highlight the line of code of one Bitcoin. You could highlight a UTXO, but the UTXO isn't actually the Bitcoin. It's the unspent transaction output of a Bitcoin transaction. So all you have are Bitcoin transactions. You don't actually have any Bitcoins. So if they were something to be visualized, light wouldn't, light wouldn't reflect off them. So it, it would be hard to, to have something visual that represents it because then you're placing it in the realm of the existent. But Bitcoins themselves aren't existent. They're like an emergent property of the way in which a certain system functions rather than an actual. But I guess you could argue that matter is the same. But I don't know. I haven't thought about that yet. Yeah, but... I'm asking because I'm I'm trying to uh, I'm trying to uh, I'm toe dipping in in this part of the rabbit hole when trying to explain why ordinals are bullshit and like the first thing like how do you explain the difference between a satoshi and any other data and the way I see it that the satoshi is something more than just data all the numbers and all, all the information can be copied but a satoshi can't like the Satoshi is attached to the secret someone is keeping. Ordinals are one of the things that I, I just I haven't looked into so much. I've been, since that whole thing exploded, I was like knee deep in creating videos on the, the bits that I did understand fully. So I, I, I don't want to say I'm an Ordinals expert at all. From what I can gather, it was an experiment that sort of slipped under the radar and some people call an accident that, you know, led to the ability to store actual uh, data on the Bitcoin blockchain, uh, such as NFTs on the Bitcoin blockchain, rather than IPFS links, which are used in, in Ethereum. So everyone got super hyped up about the fact that, oh yeah, we can have NFTs on Bitcoin now. And the sort of like Bitcoin as a platform above all else was sort of what had a lot of people excited about it. And I can, I can empathize with that position because I know that, you know, the, the desire for humans to try to control the development of complex technologies based on their preconceptions of the final purpose that they will serve can have negative effects on the natural occurrence of, of truth discovery when technologies are emerging. So I can understand why people would be hesitant to say no to something that could resemble innovation. However, Bitcoin is a different case because it did have from the very beginning a very specific purpose in mind to which it was supposed to serve. And so any straying from that could be seen as a tarnish to the, like, the original purpose, especially when you start to have these issues with, uh, you know, the block size and, and transaction fees, which I think is causing issues with lightning as well. If I'm not mistaken, um, that, you know, if the, the idea of lightning is that we can use it for small transactions like coffee and stuff, but, um, if the transaction fees on normal on-chain settlement transactions goes too high, then uh, you know the transaction fees to actually res uh, resolve a dispute that occurs on the Lightning network would be higher than the actual value of the transaction being made. And so it sort of, um, due to the increasing transaction fees, can pose big questions about whether or not Lightning would be able to actually serve the purpose as a, a payment layer or whether it, um, I've heard it, said on um the on guy swan's podcast the other day that he thought the the final 
actual layer, the Bitcoin main chain will just be more like a court and that payments will occur on uh, Lightning, like bigger payments, and then for just like your coffees and stuff, solutions like Bediment could be in place. Um, so I don't know if it would work out that way. But yeah, I can, I can see the danger of it. I'll say that. Yeah, so this layering thing is interesting. And also, like, Bitcoin's going to do what Bitcoin's going to do. And the, we can mostly just observe it. And it takes a lot of time and effort to influence any decision making or make a change to it. So I guess we'll have to just adapt to what it is. Uh, and uh, I, I think a lot of people have this conception that they know what it is and what it's going to do, and therefore they get disappointed when it behaves in other ways than they expected it to behave. I think that was the cause of the block size wars in the first place, like the main underlying cause that Bitcoin started behaving differently than they expected, uh, because people have Bitcoin is different things to Bitcoin, uh, to different people, right? So, so we all have this, these. Uh, notions about what it is and then it turns out that bitcoin's just bitcoin and it's going to do whatever it does yeah that's all what i said at the beginning which is like um yeah when you try to control or sort of enforce preconceptions on the way in which a technology should develop you risk averting like the actual process by which accidental great discoveries are made like the the whole thing with gunpowder originally being developed as a medicine and then completely changed warfare and everything forever and rubber i think was an accidental discovery like lots of things accidental discoveries just from throwing shit at the wall and seeing what sticks are ordinals another case of that where people think oh let's see if we can do nfts and then it ends up being used for something else which is actually kind of cool um beyond cat pictures maybe maybe not i think to say that you know for sure is hubris and they're already there and so i think i, I mean Correct me if I'm wrong, but it's not something that can be undone at this point, is it? Well, uh, it could be undone by a um, soft fork even, I think, uh, if I'm technical enough to explain this. But the uh, op return, the, the size of the op return could be reduced uh, so that you wouldn't be able to attach arbitrary data to a transaction in the same way. Uh because like the way I see it, the the Satoshi is uh different from all other data on the on the time chain. Because this the Satoshi is more than just data. It's uh, it represents the ability to which the user is able to change the uh, the time chain because you can move the bitcoins. And this is all done by by keeping a secret, uh i.e. uh knowing a private key. And the, the, all the other data isn't. It just isn't. It's, it's there. It's visible for everyone. And it's not attached to the Satoshi in any way. It's attached to the Coinbase transactions, to the Coinbase transaction, uh, but not to the actual Satoshi. So they sort of just pretend that it is like a serial number on a dollar, but the serial number leaves the dollar as soon as it, it, it moves. And if someone ends up coin joining that satoshi for instance they uh you can't backtrack it to the coinbase transaction and see where it came from and so the whole thing is just a charade in my in my opinion yeah yeah that would be a soft fork i'm pretty sure if it because it's constricting the rules right if you're reducing the size of the operator and then 
yeah, that's a constriction. So it would be soft. Uh, this this actually doesn't have to be a, a fork necessarily, and this is what Ocean is doing and uh, Luke Dash Jr.'s uh, Bitcoin Knots implementation. He just doesn't relay transactions that have this opportune higher, right? And so and so lower op returns are still in consensus with the rest of the network, right? And so theoretically, more people could just adopt to not relay transactions that have higher than this op return limit. But I guess I guess the idea would be that if you say from now on the op return limit has to be smaller, then I then I think that's a that's a fork. But right now, right now it's happening with without a fork. Yeah, which is even better because like all forks are there's a danger to forks in general. Like changing the rules is sort of missing the point. Like with there's a good argument to be made for never changing the rules. Or Bitcoin conservatism, if you'd like. There are good arguments to that because we it's hard to foresee second and third order effects of changing anything in the protocol. But I guess yeah, if you're running a node, put your spam filter on so you don't have to see these uh, things if you if you don't like people scamming other people. I mean, to me, it's like buying a star in the Andromeda galaxy. Like, it's there, but it's not really yours, is it? It's Anyone can see it. You can't do anything with it. It's just there. So that kind of solution could only take place at the level of the mempool, though, right? Like, in terms of what actually gets what transactions get relayed before confirmation. Because once one's actually been confirmed and a block has been mined with one of these transactions, you can't ignore it, right? Unless you want to split the chain. No, the transactions that have already been made are there forever. Uh, unless we hard fork and censor and stuff. But still, they're only in the Coinbase. As, as to my knowledge, I should. Uh, this is the disclaimer here, but to my knowledge, they're only in the Coinbase transaction and they don't follow the Satoshi anywhere unless you copy the data and do it in the next transaction as well. But what's the point of doing that? Yeah, I, I think definitely anything that poses a threat to the fungibility of Bitcoin, I'm like, like staunchly against because I think that could be some like a, an actual sort of death sentence over the long run. But yeah, what you're saying about it being hard, it reminds me of that... Um, Chinese story, you know, the one about the guy, uh, whose son, um, or oh, he's out in the wild and he finds a bunch of horses and, um, the whole village says, oh, nice. Well done. You found some horses. And then he goes, ah, oh, we'll see. And he brings them home. And then his, his son's riding on one the next day and falls off and breaks his leg. And the whole village goes, oh, you're so unlucky. You know, I wish you didn't find all those horses. Your son wouldn't have broken his leg. And he says, oh, we'll see. And then the next day the army's coming around and they're, they're drafting everyone into a new war and. And his son doesn't get picked because he's got a broken leg. And the whole village says, ah, oh, you're so lucky. Your son didn't get picked. And he says, we'll see. And I think the, the general point of that is with Bitcoin as well. Um, if you say don't change the rules, we'll see. You know, that the, there was a change in the rules that happened in the, the, the block wall, block size debate. And that led to, you know, SegWit, for instance, to be able to enable the, the utilization of the Lightning Network. And then for that to be able to go to Taproot, which does have massive, massive privacy benefits. It, it's hard to say exactly. You can't really get like a full bird's eye view of the entire board to see what the best move is. And I think to, as a general principle, restricting moves is dangerous because you have to have such a, a high level 
and comprehensive understanding. It almost becomes totalitarian if you believe you to have, if you believe yourself to have the total understanding of what's best for the progression of the technology. Yeah, absolutely. I absolutely agree. And that's why, why we love the system because it doesn't have leaders. We, we all have to come to consensus, to consensus of some kind, but like this is true for everything in economics, by the way, that you, you live in the timeline you live in. You never see the alternative timeline. You never, you can never tell what would have happened if things had played out another way than they did. And we are living through this phase, whether we like it or not. Just as we lived through the block size wars, whether we like that or not, uh, and <laughs> the conclusion, as always, is study Bitcoin. Uh, it will change you more than you can change it, and that's a good thing. Yeah, strap in, Angela. Maybe uh, on the on the note of uh, studying Bitcoin, can you tell us a little bit about what you've been up to to further Bitcoin education? Yeah. So, um, so I would say I was working on the the YouTube channel project. For the past year, but um, that's all stopped now. Um, and I think while there is definitely um the need for for more education that suits a wider audience, because at the end of the day, this type of conversation it's hard to get people even interested in the first place. And I think one sort of axiom that has to be taken as true when considering how to get Bitcoin adoption is that the majority of people just don't care and won't. They 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 won't care about the technology or why it exists or who created it or what Satoshi means, what Nakamoto is. They just don't have the time or, or energy to even be learning anything outside of uh, the job they do to pay their way. And so, you know, I was speaking to Obi and not this uh, last Amsterdam, but the one before that. And when he was explaining his whole project with Fetty to me, he made the point that um, until it's actually profitable for these people to use it until it actually benefits them in some material way, the utilization won't be there. And so I think there's two approaches to, to the adoption. There's one, which is like, just make it work for people so that it benefits their lives. And if it's uh, reducing the costs um, or increasing the outputs of their labor in some way, they will use it because it's just like the thermodynamics of it. It's become, it adds leverage to their life. They put in their works for labor and it stores that energy better. So there's that approach. And then there's also the approach of, well, the thing is an idea. And if we want people to grasp the magnitude of the idea, then they have to get the idea. And the problem with Bitcoin, it's not something you can hold in your hand, right? It, it is something that is conceptual to its core. And so there is some level of large scale conceptual understanding that I think has to be reached over the long run. If, if we want people to hear of things like CBDCs and rather than think, Oh, that's what it is now. We use CBDCs. They think, oh, that's an option on the table because that's, a, I think the, the purpose of Bitcoin is to get to a point where, um, it's just increasing the optionality of the average person so that they don't have to be subjugated to tyrannical levels of leverage held up on them by those who stand to gain from the current structure of the financial system. So that's sort of the, the point of, that's, that was my viewpoint on what's, what needs to happen for adoption. I'm not smart enough to work on the tech stuff that makes it actually beneficial to people in their lives. Unfortunately, I would love to maybe sometime in the future if I um, spend a lot of time learning. But on the education side, you know, I think there is a, a there's a potential to make it more available to a wider audience in the same way that you would deliver medicine 
to people in a epidemic. I think we need to take the whole modern monetary theory and the, the sort of zeitgeist of current financial operations as an epidemic of, of the, at the level of memes, um, and not memes like funny pictures, but memes like the brain things. And Bitcoin is the medicine to that problem, to the, the fiat standard problem. And so if you can't make the information any easier to digest, you're going to have a really hard job getting a lot of people to swallow it. And so, you know, communication of any idea or education, education is just communication and the communication of any idea is limited in large part to the medium that's used to get your point across. And I think video is, you know, everybody's paying attention to video, especially, you know, the average Joe that just got home from work, they might have time for a one minute video. They're probably not going to read the Bitcoin standard. And so there has to be a solution for those people where we are taking into account the fact that if the medicine tastes like shit, people aren't going to drink it. Um, and we need to make the medicine taste a bit better. And so the whole idea of, of permissionless agency that I'm starting up is to make information taste better. Um, and the way that you do that, I think, is by playing the game of uh, attention at the same level as other industries. And I think at the moment, Bitcoin, there's some great content being created by a lot of people. But if we could increase the, the production value of that and make it up to the standard of creators that are competing in much more competitive domains, such as just general finance or or economics content creators, then we should be able to reach a louder audience by speaking in tones that actually um, sort of resonate with them better. So long term, I think, you know, I've got some plans for potential documentaries and stuff, which would be great. But yeah, that's, that's sort of where I want to position myself in the whole race to get people to understand Bitcoin. Because um, I come from a video background, so it's sort of combining the two points of knowledge. All right. You might have noticed that we've recently partnered with Amber App. After our episode with Izzy, their CEO and our close friend, we knew we would have to partner with them in some way. If you haven't seen our episode with Izzy, definitely go check it out. You'll see why it's such a great fit. And honestly, they're following the orange glowing light like Izzy always says. And that's exactly what we try to do here at the Freedom Footprint Show. The big news about Amber App is that they're going to be launching their version 2.0. I've seen some of the screenshots and it looks fantastic. They're going to be including a non-custodial on-chain wallet, an anonymous lightning wallet, a fiat wallet, and finally, it's going to be an exchange, of course. It's going to be just this super app. They're also going to be launching globally. Everyone's going to be able to use it. We're really excited about all that. Stay tuned with us and you'll hear all about it. And for now, check out their website, amber.app, and the episode with Izzy to find out more. Next up, Wasabi Wallet, the privacy by default, open source, non-custodial Bitcoin wallet with CoinJoin built in. It's the easy to use, comprehensive, affordable way to make your coins private. And the best part is they've been making huge improvements to the app. They're really focusing on the user experience, adding advanced features for power users. They just keep getting better. You send your coins to your Wasabi Wallet and they get combined with loads of other coins using the Wabi Sabi protocol. So they're private on the other end. Your tracks are covered so you can work on expanding your freedom footprint without worrying about your privacy. So check out wasabiwallet.io and download Wasabi today. So uh, in, in terms of uh, memetics, like if, if you try to take the pulse on, on your generation, do you think we're like, 
where are most people at? Are they like, is this era of wokeness and uh, just doing what you're told? Is it coming to an end? Does the uh, the opposite, like the freedom footprint side of humanity, is that uh, are are we multiplying? Like, do you see do you see that in your life? Like, uh, what are your thoughts there? I think I think definitely. Um, just from like the people that I know in my generation, that the the sort of energy around any sort of conversation um, around Bitcoin or or money in general five years ago was, you know, much less enthusiastic, or there was much less enthusiasm to discover more than there is today. Because I think today people are feeling the effects more of the failures in, inherent in the current system. Inflation, I think, is and just the cost of living in general has shown people that you know these problems actually might be a bit more personal than you thought. You think a lot of people see it as these high-level things that occur at the level of the state and the government, and it's not their problem, and they're just subject to it. But as it starts to burn more, people start to think, am I just subject to it, or do I have some say in this? Um, and that dissatisfaction, I think, is beginning to to be the cause of, or, or like the or provide the activation energy for people to move towards um, more financial literacy and just understanding, better understanding their own optionality. So, so yeah, but the wokeness thing, I think vast majority of people my age, it's just completely, it's fucked, I'll be honest. The vast majority of people that I meet my age, it feels like they're not using their own brains. It's sort of like a hive mind, unfortunately. But I think that's just a product of the amount of time and attention that is spent on you know, their social media sort of echo chambers. Yeah, uh, it's it's certainly getting promoted, uh, or it has been get, um, getting a lot of promotion, that sort of worldview, like uh, the, the last decade. And like, I would say post-COVID specifically, that uh, Disney went really off the deep end. Now maybe we'll see uh, uh, the pendulum sl- swing the other way after that uh, South Park episode about... South Park or about Disney being too woke and stuff. <laughs> I mean, uh, I, I'm just worried what the pendulum swinging the other way looks like because, like, uh, I mean, you wouldn't want to get into a society where gay people are thrown off rooftops and stuff. Like, that's that's not optimal either. So, so it's it's a tricky thing. But it's it like it's this pendulum thing about humanity in in general that we swing from one extreme to another in all issues and the internet seems to amplify that i think from my my intuition is that the the pendulum is so far in one direction for my generation at the moment that for it to swing the other way would require some catastrophe that deeply burns them all and associates that burn with the current positioning of positioning of the pendulum if you will um and I, i think what will likely happen before that um you know, that's like very much an impact-based change. Something bad happens and everybody swings the other way reactively. But then there's also just like the the chronic dissatisfaction with the status quo on the majority of issues that is leaving a large portion of people my age feeling very alienated and without a place. And so, you know, unfortunately, I think you, you do see that with people like the rise of Andrew Tate in the past year and stuff, where it was like everybody just needed to latch on to some sort of, you know, thought leader that could provide them an antidote to 
for the sort of bullshit that they have to deal with from the opposite end for so long. And then instead of like, you know, using their own brains and finding the middle ground, people just go, oh yeah, it's become slightly more socially acceptable to say X, Y, Z instead of ABC now. So I'm just only going to say X, Y, Z instead of saying Y, Z, A, B, just having some middle ground, people sort of just want to fly the other direction. And I think the agency, the, the agency of the individual is probably the main point that needs to be fostered in order for there to be like a, a just a better society in general, because to me, it just feels when I speak to people, a lot of people my age, it just feels like there's, there's very little agency there when it comes to opinions and perspectives. It's more, it's almost like they, they do some sort of subconscious cost benefit analysis of saying things that are tied directly to their reputation because there's no North star after God died, everything stops at the skull. It's just like the ego and then nothing above. There is no like guiding principle that makes people want to actually consider anything in their lives to be more important than reputation, status, and material acquisition. So then, yeah, the, the, the game of opinions and stuff stops being about, well, what matters to me? What do I believe? And more just like, what's going to keep me my job and what's going to get me the, the social approval of my immediate circle. Uh, it just doesn't go beyond that. Oh, it's, it's so, uh, it's so true. It's it, it, like, we all do this cost analysis thing. It's just that we come to different conclusions about it. And, uh, like more people should, uh, like just, just liberating yourself from stuff in general. It's such a, it's to me, it's such an obvious life goal to have, like the, the, the fewer sh shackles you have around your feet, the, the, the faster you can move and the more things you can do like it's 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 pretty obvious but but people don't seem to to uh, see things that way no I, and it's also that i think it's just a uh you know when you do yeah you're right everybody does do the cost benefit analysis before they say anything really um it's, but especially when it comes to you know you're at a party with your friends or you're at the bar with your friends or you're at the the, the kitchen with on your lunch break with your coworkers and somebody brings up a relatively contentious topic and asks you your opinion on it. And everybody in that moment does a cost-benefit analysis of what they should say. And oftentimes there is what they actually believe, what they think people want them to say, and then they get find some middle ground. And I think the degree to which they sway towards what they actually think versus what they think they want the, the people around them want to hear, I think is a good proxy for understanding what principles orient that person in the world. So if for instance, freedom is a very strong orienting principle, then saying something closer to what they actually believe is going to be more likely because freedom of speech, right? You should be, you should be able to say these things and, and sort of just let it ride out and see how it unfolds after you say it. But then if reputation is much bigger or pride is much bigger, then yeah, they're going to want to sort of play the part more. Um, and I, I do think in the incredibly secular world that we're in, right now, it's going to be hard to get people to see much as more important than what John Vivekhi says is the success on the horizontal axis. So he, he posits this idea that in, in life, there's two axes of success. There is the horizontal, which is, you know, you're here and then, or you're here. And on the other side of it is money, fame, respect, uh, family, kids, um, stuff that's external, nice house, nice car. And then you have the vertical axis, which is you're here, you know, maybe you're insecure because you had a stutter when you were younger and now you find it slightly harder to speak in public. And then up here is like, 
you don't have that issue anymore. You overcame it. And then up here is like, now you're a great public speaker and you don't have any self-consciousness with regards to your interactions. And up here is like, you only say what you believe to be true or something. So there's a, a vertical axis of um, self-transcendence that is only sort of, you can only make progress on that axis by doing like deep work, internal work, but you can make progress on this axis much quicker in a sense, or not quicker, but you can make progress on that axis without having to confront the demons that actually scare you, which are oftentimes on the vertical axis. And so people use success on the horizontal as a proxy for success. But I think the actual success is done vertically. And so people are more concerned with being seen as successful than they are with being successful. And a lot of people don't even know what that means to them. And so when there is a, a question arises and, you know, what do you think about X, Y, Z contentious topic, people are more likely to choose whatever just fits their social group because they don't have, they're not oriented vertically, you could say. I, I butchered that whole explanation, but you get the point. No, no, it's, it's beautiful. But I, 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 what I have a hard time with is, is how it's connected to secularism. Because to me, uh, th this is more akin to organized religion behavior where, where, uh, where virtue signaling is everything, showing that you're a good Christian or a good Muslim or whatever. It has turned into, since the state has so much control now because of fiat, it has turned into an organized religion where, where like signaling that you're a good statist uh, becomes, uh, becomes the main virtue signaling me mechanism instead of maybe a hundred years ago when, yeah, I go to church every Sunday. Like it's so, so just another religion replacing the old one. So, so secularism in my mind is what, what freed us from the shackles of the, the old paradigm. But, uh, then that it, we've been hijacked again by, Basically by fiat, <laughs> but because that's the underlying uh, mechanism that that uh, makes the state so big and so influential, and the propaganda is so strong. So so then, like we take all these things for granted that the state is our friend and it's taking care of us, and that becomes the new religion. But so 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 why secularism? For exactly that reason, because when religion or when God died, they left a power vacuum in a sense uh, that needed to be filled by something and. And like you said, when you see the world as more or less figured out by science, that there was some spontaneous chemical reaction that happened on accident, and now you're supposed to call that you, you become a brain floating around in a weird box that's sort of piloting this meat machine that has no real purpose because it's all an accident and nothing really matters. And you, you devolve into nihilism. When you devolve into nihilism, the lack of meaning, I think, I think a symptom of the lack of meaning that people have in their lives is a redirection towards hedonism. And, and I think hedonism is a driving cause of a lot of these sort of unvirtuous virtue signalers. Yeah, but the cure to that is not going back to some play pretend thing, right? Like uh, if, if you're just pretending that you know what happened, then that's just as bad in my mind. I don't think it's about pretending that you know what happened. I think it's, it's more at the level of your interpretation of the world around you. Like the way the, like it's at the, the kernel level, if you will, like the way in which you actually interface with the world. How are you, how are you prioritizing things? And a large part of the question of how are you prioritizing things is based on, on the context and 
in large part to to prioritize is to serve a purpose. When you make a prioritization, it is toward a particular purpose. And so devoid of purpose. This is Misesian. Human action is purposeful behavior. That's <laughs> the first axiom of praxeology. Exactly. And human action, but even human perception as well is an act of prioritization. And so when there are these acts of prioritization, they are to serve a particular purpose. And without any larger purpose than self, all of the prioritization is based around self. And then you have, well, like you see in the US, massively rising rates of narcissistic personality disorder. More antisocial personality disorders are, are increasing massively over the past 50 years. It's all sort of heading backwards in a sense because there is nothing greater than self anymore. And if there's nothing greater than self, then why should you say what you truly believe if it's going to get you fired? Yeah, still, this ties back to our conversation with Jeff Booth with uh, about how uh, the main takeaway I got from that is that reality is, uh, uh, reality is a reflection of consciousness back at you. So like you create your own reality to a much larger extent than you think like what you focus on becomes your actual reality because everything else isn't there for you subjectively so to me like the this scientism uh the the the, the basic flaw of that wor- worldview is that it uh, it rejects other types of science than empiricism to me it's just this this uh notion that empiricism is the answer to to everything when there is uh, an equal or greater amount of a priori knowledge that 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 is even better at explaining reality than the empir- empirical sciences can ever be, uh, this is from my favorite Hopper book, the uh, um, Economic Science and the Austrian Method, where he explains how even the statement that empiricists make that uh, all knowledge we can have, we can uh, we. We use the scientific method to get uh, empirical testing and so on, peer review, to get into uh, a better and better approximation of the truth, but there is no such thing as an uh, an absolute truth. Uh, But what he points out is that that statement in itself presupposes that there is an absolute truth because that's an axiomatic, that's an axiomatic sentence. It it does state that something is absolutely true that there's no absolute truth, so so it's it's contradictory in that sense. So I think this uh, a priori knowledge is what's lacking from from uh, from reality. So we were like substituted, you know, the old religions with something th- that wasn't really fit for replacing that. And that is like uh, okay. So now, uh, now you know that uh, there is no proof that God exists. So you go to school and you learn all these other things that are that you just take at face value and accept them to be true without questioning them. And that's you're 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 making the same mistake over again. Like so so um, yeah. That there's something missing for sure. But but I don't think like going back to some some old some old uh, system is it, that's not the future i mean <laughs> forwards is forwards and backwards is backwards i was just going to say like well, yeah backwards is backwards in some sense um if you know exactly what backwards is um you know like you said about second third and fourth order effects of things it's hard to know exactly which direction is is forwards and which direction is backwards if you're not um what is it om omnip omnipotent what's the one that knows everything omnipotent 
if you're not om- omnipotent, then then yeah, good luck saying that you know which 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 is forwards and backwards, which goes back to the the Chinese proverb of the the farmer, right? It's like everything you might think, oh, your kid broke his leg, that's bad, sure, but then it's like, but again, you're not taking into account the larger picture, and there is some acknowledgement that has to be made by every human of the limited scope of their understanding and of their perceptions, and so. So yes, on that point, there are elements that you would not like to reinstate about the old way of religion. However, using myself as a personal case study, I would say over the past three years, I've become more religious, but I haven't subscribed to any religion at all. Um, but I've just noticed the way that I perceive the reality that I live in. And like, like you say, the axioms upon which I base the rest of my understanding have vastly changed. Five years ago, I was incredibly, incredibly nihilistic um, and believed that there was little to be done in the world of much meaning at all. And it was all sort of accidental and just do whatever because you're going to die anyway. And I tried to convince myself that it was optimistic nihilism, but failed in that um, because it made me very pessimistic. And I think it just, it fosters bad behavior in a sense. Um, and I think the at the core of that, it's not that now I think that the only way I can sort of explain it visually is this. Like before, it sort of, there was some sort of hierarchy of importance and it would stop here where the, the ego is. And I would think there was nothing beyond that because there is no guiding principle. There is no larger narrative. It's all just accidental. Anything can happen. You just take what you can get before you die. That's not a very good attitude to have about the world. And so I think when you shift away from that and shift towards at being more principled or actually virtuous. Like if you believe truth is something that should be prioritized. And so you do your best to say that to speak the truth at the cost of all else, that is a more religious act because it's even in cases where you're going to incur some immediate uh, cost to speaking the truth, you still do it on faith that it's still the right thing to do. And that over a long enough period of time, that is the best way in which you should live your life. So it's maybe not, maybe using the word religion and, and religiousness sort of taints it with a lot spiritual? of previous stuff. Is that better? Spiritual, again, yeah, that works, but it's also been tainted as well. I think just, just yeah, f- faithful in general. I'm, I'm really curious, Knut, if you don't mind my, uh, I, I just have one very specific question, Angela, because I'm, I'm really hearing a lot of parallels to, to, uh, Something specific here. How much Peterson have you read, Jordan Peterson? Oh, quite quite a bit, yeah. Maps of Meaning? No, I haven't read that. Is it good? Oh, you have to. You have to. Oh, man. No, everything you're saying about the perception stuff is just is just absolutely uh, coming straight out of that. Uh, I, I think you'd love it. I mean, to me, the, the book is entirely about finding meaning in the absence of nihilism and explaining, or, sorry, in the presence of nihilism and, and explaining how meaning develops uh coincidentally i'm in the middle of a series on maps of meaning with rob breedlove right now so yeah check that okay, out yeah. if, if you like plus your series and stuff i will and if you're into that type of conversation as well i would recommend one to both of you um there's a guy called john viveki um who did a series a lecture series called awakening from the meaning crisis definitely check that out if you haven't and all the listeners as well 100 percent check that out i i tried I tried that, but I couldn't get through it. I did watch his series on on Breedlove as well, though. Uh, he was also on Breedlove, I mean, and I I, I watched the Verveke series. He has a lot of interesting ideas. 
Absolutely. And yeah, I think I speak for most, you know, passionate Bitcoiners when I say that uh, we've uh, our journeys are almost always like from uh, nihilistic to virtuous, <laughs> if you will, or nihilistic to finding more meaning in our lives and something to something to live for. And I've been thinking a lot about that too. And like, there's a lot of talk about finding noise, uh, finding signal in the noise. And to me, Bitcoin is not the signal, but it's the greatest noise remover ever because it removes all the layers of noise uh, from your life. So you don't have to worry about the noise anymore. And all of a sudden you can see this, what you were talking about before, the x-axis and the y-axis of um, uh, where you want to, what you want to do with your life. And then you can see more clearly, hang on, there's another axis here that, that, that is more, even more fulfilling to, to, to climb up than to just walk sideways on this materialistic thing. Uh, so absolutely. I think one of the best ways that I can tie that into the Jordan Peterson thing, Jordan Peterson had a quote. Um, I think it was a Jordan Peterson quote. I'm not sure, but it might've been something from, I don't know, but it said, um, something along the lines of one of the most, uh, it was a, uh, a posit of a potential ultimate purpose, which was the pursuit of truth in the service of love. And I read two interesting, uh, sort of definitions of, of both truth and of love recently. Um, while I'm explaining this, keep in mind the idea of money as language. So the definition of uh, truth was as the inverse of deceit, right? And so you think the fiat system is deceit. By printing more, you're playing God, saying that you can add resources by adding the measurement of resources. Um, silly stuff, but that's deceit. And so Bitcoin would be truth. So the pursuit of truth could be transposed as the pursuit of Bitcoin in the service of love. And I heard another interesting definition of love the other day, which was the generous interpretation of the actions of others. And if you are talking on like a conversational basis, that might be, you know, somebody doesn't take out the trash and instead of thinking, oh, it's because they're evil and they don't do every, anything good ever and they suck and they don't like me, it could just be they had a bad day. Maybe they're just not feeling it. I'll just do it now. So that's sort of like the generous interpretation of the actions of others. But economically, um, the generous, the way in which you interpret uh, the value of the actions of others is with the compensation that you give them monetarily. Um, and so the pursuit of truth in the service of love uh, as an ultimate purpose, materially instantiated in the development of Bitcoin, could look something like the pursuit of Bitcoin in the service of the generous economic interpretation of the actions of others, which sounds a hell of a lot to me like you know deflation, um, as Jeff Booth frames it, which is prices actually begin to come down and there becomes more value is exchanged per hands. There's more win-win transactions that occur. I don't know. It's an idea that I literally just had. So I'm still sort of winning it out, but I think there's something in there. Absolutely. It sounds like you're onto something, but like it's, it's not only about finding better and more truthful transactions. It's also about removing unnecessary deceitful transactions. Like, I think that's, that's an, equal or, or larger portion of what this is because Bitcoin sort of incentivizes you to not spend and to, to live a more humble life, if you will. Uh, at least that's, that's where it's the direction it has taken me. I mean, I, mean I, I, I wasn't ever very materialistic, but Bitcoin has sort of pointed out that, you know, striving for more material wealth was 
it was just as bullshitty as I expected it to be all along. It's just that it's good to have a pile of money to feel safe uh, and to know that you're, you'll be all right and to know that, okay, I can do what I want with my life now and then just start thinking about what that means. Yeah, for sure. I wonder if, um, you know, the freedom and safety are often put as opposing motivators today. Oftentimes, you know, especially in as it relates to the state, the state often tries to buy your freedom with safety. They, you know, they claim safety as as something you're getting in return for your freedoms. You know, give us your freedoms in return. You'll be safer. We promise because we know best type thing. Um, but like you said there, having a big stack does make you feel more safe. Um, but it also makes you more free. So I was like, hmm, isn't freedom, isn't freedom then something we could actually use as a metric to measure safety? Um, because sure, you could be safer from damage if you were less free. But by being less free, if it's not really your actions, if actions are being imposed by fiat upon you, um, then it is that safety, or is it just a is that someone else's safety being sort of transposed onto your life by decree? No, it's it's false safety. It's it's the illusion of safety. So this this uh, reminds me so much of this Benjamin Franklin quote that I love. Those who would give up essential liberty to purchase a little temporary safety deserve neither liberty nor safety. Uh, I've heard that paraphrased as uh, "deserve neither and will lose both," and I love that because, like, they're they're very connected. And uh, yeah, the founding fathers were were based. I mean, they knew what they were talking about, especially Franklin. But uh, so there's absolutely a connection between freedom and uh, between liberty and safety. And it's not what people think it is. You gotta be free to trip over some things and scar your knee every now and then. I think I, um, if you were to be forcefully wrapped in bubble wrap your whole life and sent about your way, would you call that safety? Well, it, it's damaging in and of itself. It is a act of damage to restrict oneself to that degree. So I think if you only see damage as, or danger even, as the risk of the loss of resource, then sure, but again, that goes back to the vertical axis things. Um, if resource is the most important, or resource accumulation is the most important thing, then sure, you'll feel safer um, when you're less free. Um, but yeah, I think it, it's an axiomatic thing. There's this, there's this great scene from this movie Papillon, uh, where it's about this this guy getting sentence, uh, getting a life sentence on the Salvation Island. So he's in a prison on the Salvation Island, uh, Salvation Islands. And uh, in one of his fever dreams, when being trapped in this cells for for for, de- for decades, uh, he's crawling in a desert, and there's a jury in the desert, uh, and. Uh, uh, he crawls up to the jury, and if I remember correctly, the 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 judge says, oh, uh, "The jury deems you guilty," and and then he bangs his gavel, and uh, uh, the the guy says, um, Steve McQueen, by the way, says, uh, "Well, I'm not guilty. I was innocent." Uh, no, you're you're mis misinterpreting the crime. You're guilty of a wasted life. 
And and to me, like uh, that scene was profound. Like it, it's just I have the image in the back of my head every time because like uh, all of the time because the, my greatest fear I realized is a, a mundane life that leads to nothing. Like uh, <laughs> just doing what you're told and sitting in your the same house all your life, never going anywhere, having the same job, uh, and then just. That to me is the scariest, the scariest thing, like never exploring anything, never, never getting out of your comfort zone. Yeah. The best quote that I had, I used to do a lot of parkour when I was younger. I think I went over my story with you when I first got on, um, about the parkour accident, which led me to Bitcoin funnily enough. So I guess the quote is even more true, but there was a, a quote that I always used to say when I was doing parkour, which was, um, a ship at shore is a safe ship, but that's not what ships are built for. It's like, sure, you can have, if you've got a ship, it's supposed to be out incurring the the cost of large waves and uh, and the tides of, of the real world. If you keep it at, at shore, sure, it's safe. But like, again, safety becomes paramount if you lack purpose. The purpose of the ship is to be out at sea. Um, if you keep it locked up in a warehouse or, or stowed at shore, then sure, you can get your safety, but there's a greater cost that is alluded to by the by the judges in the in the desert there and i think if there could be some shift yeah the the other quote is uh calm seas never made any good sailors right which is the same thing basically yeah and i i think like the the, the best safety net you can have is life experience like the more life experience you have the the safer you are against you, you know things turning sideways and things not going the way you thought they would if you have life experience and if you know yourself and if you know if you can control your your feelings to some extent and uh you know know your mind then you're better equipped to deal with uncertainty uh which is what it's all about i guess yeah that's the whole idea of the vertical axis thing i was talking about which is like horizontal might be okay how far did you sail but then vertical is like how good of a sailor did you become and so yeah, the focus on becoming a better sailor, I think, is something, a shift that needs to happen. The show is also sponsored by Orange Pill app, the Bitcoin-only social network where you can stack friends who stack sats. You can connect with your favorite Bitcoiners on the app, make local connections, and even connect with Bitcoiners around the world. You can see what's going on in your local area and connect with Bitcoiners around you. I've been to multiple events organized on Orange Pill app, and they brought Bitcoiners together from all over. And now with group chat, it's easier than ever to stay in touch with all of your Bitcoin friends. The best part is that you know it's high signal. There's no spam on Orange Pill app because everyone pays to be there. So download Orange Pill app on Apple or Android, send me your canoe to DM, and start building your local network of Bitcoiners today. Next up, the Bitcoin way. Their mission is to onboard, educate, and remove barriers to taking self-custody of your Bitcoin. They cover everything from cold wallets to nodes, no KYC Bitcoin purchases, inheritance planning, payments, and more. Whether you're new to Bitcoin or you're an experienced Bitcoiner looking to expand your freedom footprint, or you know someone who this sounds perfect for, the Bitcoin Way has something for you. They have a skilled team, well-versed in the Bitcoin space, and their goal is to make all the complexities of Bitcoin as straightforward as possible for everyone. And the best part is you can get started with a free 30-minute call with their team. Go to thebitcoinway.com contact for more info. Our newest sponsor is Geyser. They are the portal to the creator economy on Bitcoin. On Geyser, creators can monetize their work through their communities in a social and engaging way. 
and supporters can send sats to their favorite projects. Geyser has also recently integrated with Zaps and Podcasting 2.0, so every Zap sent to a Geyser address shows up on the Geyser page. We have a Geyser fund ourselves. It's the best way to support our show directly with Bitcoin. So whether you're a creator or a supporter, check out Geyser at geyser.fund today. I do have one more question, by the way. I was listening to your Jeff Booth thing. Um, and you started talking about free will, and I didn't quite get to the bit where you sort of gave your point on free will, but I think we'd have an interesting little five-minute discussion on that. So what? So do you think you have free will? This is a, a, a great question. I'd like, I, I always answer that with one, one of my favorite uh, Christopher Hitchens quotes, which is, of course, you have free will. You have no choice but to have it. Because uh, <laughs> it's such, yeah. because it's such a such a lovely conundrum, and um, uh, we're doing an interview with Folker soon, I think, Luke, and uh, he wants he really wants to do a deep dive into this subject. So it's it's, it's fun that you took it up because uh, that you brought it up because there's there are studies uh, of how consciousness works, and the consciousness uh, has a lag of like half a second or something. So when you think you make a conscious decision, the decision has not already been made by some other part of your brain, and consciousness is just like the movie playing up for your mind, uh, uh, like rationalizing what happened in hindsight. So Falker's conclusion is that you can have free will, but you have to presuppose that there is some there is such a thing as a soul that 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 lives outside of your brain. Because how you run into some some of these catch twenty twos with like okay so so you think you control your mind well you can't really you can't really control what thoughts come into it like I guess you can control to some extent what what thoughts you choose to be you, I I have a suspicion that you can choose focus like you can choose what thoughts to focus on and what thoughts to discard to some extent at least but that i'm not basing that on anything else than intuition um but like a, a world where free will doesn't exist that's uh, to me uh deterministic and boring uh i i know that free will couldn't exist without entropy if if the the universe was predetermined and you could figure it all out and uh, we didn't have uh unforeseen things uh then free will couldn't exist it's just impossible so so something is going on somewhere and i don't know what it is <laughs> but, but I, I i i act as if free will exists if if that makes any sense to paraphrase peterson yeah i, I think it's um it's interesting you could probably have an answer that, that sort of checks both boxes um if you just realize that there's, there's more than one way to ask the question, right? Because, so you can say you have free will, but, but what is you in that? Like, what are you referring to when you say you? Yeah, that's, that's the conundrum. Right. Yeah. So if you don't even know what you are, then why, why are we getting ahead of ourselves with questions of free will? And I think this is an interesting, like you is, it, it, it presupposes a separate entity. Um, that can impose for there to be free will, there has to be a separate entity that can impose upon a another separate entity. Like the self can impose upon the other, and th there is the assumption in that 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 separation is is true. But I, I'd say if you get rid of that assumption that there is a separate entity called Knut's 
or, or a separate entity uh, called Luke, then the question of free will becomes paradoxically, yes, there is free will, um, but there is no you to have it. And then you can join those studies which say that there is that the decision happens before the conscious awareness of it with the and retain your your sense of free will at the same time because you're you're you kick the can back one level of analysis to the point of the actual axiomatic assumptions about the nature of self and other that's very very interesting did you ever hear about the meme theory of everything no which is like trying to connect uh uh, like the big one in 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 uh, the natural sciences to to connect the theory of uh, general relativity with the quantum theory, and this guy uh, had a good explanation. It's an article. It's on Medium, something so you can check it out. Like the meme theory of everything, and he argues that reality is where our consciousnesses uh, collide, so uh, uh, where our memes sync, so to speak. So. Uh, you know, I, I can see Luke on my screen here, and you can see Luke on your screen here, and our consciousnesses have a similar idea of what that means. So we collide, and that becomes reality. Uh, uh, I should have m maybe made another example. The table behind Luke is a better example than Luke himself because he's a conscious being him himself. But but the thing is, uh, this theory we don't know that for uh, sure. I'm not. I, now I, I'm I'm not I'm not uh, <laughs> I, I I'm not too familiar. I don't remember it too well, so I'm trying to do a TLDR on something I I don't completely understand. But the uh, there were some takeaways. Like it it would explain the Fermi paradox because it's uh, we couldn't sync with minds uh, that were too far away from the Earth. So like uh, so reality on other stars don't mix with our reality simply because of the equivalent of a hash horizon in Bitcoin. You know, you can't sync a node on Mars because Mars is too far away most of the time of the year and you definitely couldn't sync a node on Uranus. Well, uh, and so, uh, so this is where the meme theory of everything sort of uh, a UFO or a signal, rather a signal from another galaxy that we can cannot interpret it, interpret as anything else than uh, another civilization trying to talk with us would would debunk the theory because it's simply too far away but yeah it's it's just a theory and just a thought but uh, but I, I found it intriguing the bitcoin's quite cool eh <laughs> absolutely <laughs> because there's so many so many parallels parallels between how it actually works technically with all of these uh exciting um theories about reality and consciousness and stuff like this, like sinking time in this uh, intra-subjective way instead of having this illusion of objective time when there's actually no such thing and the time goes, the time, time flows at different speeds depending on where you are and gravity and stuff. So uh, the, uh, the thought of intersubjective time uh, and an intersubjective time chain is, is also very yeah, it opens up a whole plethora of other rabbit holes to deep dive into, doesn't it? Yeah, intersubjectivity is 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 interesting one because it's it's sort of at the core of, like you were saying, the prioritization of perceptions. Back when, like normal religions were 
the main thing. Everybody agreed uh, that God was real and that the stories of the Bible were, it happened. And so everybody acted as if that was the case. And because everybody acted as if that was the case, in some sense, it became the case. And uh, I don't, I'm not smart enough to understand Nietzsche at all, but I think when he said God is dead, to some extent, that was an acknowledgement of the fact that like, whilst everybody had the, the intersubjective consensus that it was the case, that he was there, he was there to, in some other way. But then once that um, consensus died, so did he. And the same applies to Bitcoin. Bitcoin only exists because everybody believes that it does. There's no actual thing. And in a large part, the same applies to, to the, the monetary premium of like a £10 note or a $10 note because the belief in the value is what actually makes it true that it is valuable. So it's almost that it goes back to the prioritization of perceptions again. Like you prioritize things that have value to you. Um, I think this was sort of covered on the, was it Viveki? No, there's a guy called Mike Hill, another good series on breed love that's worth taking a look at. The Mike Hill series was really good. He touched upon this a lot. Yeah, he's great. Uh, uh, he, his series about, is about the hero's journey stuff, right? Or one of the series with him, I think. I think one of them was, yeah. yeah. But in general, it was about value. This re reminds me of two things. Uh, first, a book recommendation, Small Gods by Terry Pratchett. Where, where this is actually the case, that the gods become more alive the more people believe in them uh, in a fantasy world. Uh, uh, and yeah, uh, my, my big thought on this and uh, related to Bitcoin is that Pascal's wager uh, actually provably works with Bitcoin. So if you replace the word uh, god, like uh, uh, Pascal's wager is like if you... Uh, you have this binary choice. You can uh, choose to believe that God exists or not exists. And if, uh, if you choose to believe that God does not exist, you, you risk uh, in eternal damnation in hell and burning forever and, and stuff. So why not just act as if God exists and uh, then you mitigate that risk? The problem with Pascal's wager as is, as, uh, as I see it, is that it discards all the other 5,000 religions that have a different notion of what the word God means. Uh, but if you do it with Bitcoin, if you act as if Bitcoin exists, you act actually help it materialize uh, in a very real and direct way. So if you take Bitcoin for a real thing and not as most people think it's funny money and that it's a, it's a scam and it's a pyramid scheme and whatever. And they don't contribute to Bitcoin's existence, but those who live this thing and, and uh, act as if it, is, if it exists actually make it come into being uh, in a very real sense. Uh, so, so I find that insanely fascinating that, uh, that it's actually a, a provable substitute for God. Yeah. Like it's the same with Bitcoin, right? If, if nobody, if there were no humans to interpret the the binary strings that make up the Bitcoin network, then there would be no Bitcoin network. It's the interpretation, it's the imposition of meaning onto those those binary strings that gives it its existence. If there was no observer, it's kind of like that that double slit meme that you you shared the other day. Where the guy's looking away, and it's the wave, and then he looks at it, and it's the thing. If nobody's looking at Bitcoin. If there's nobody to interpret, I'd uh, say so humans are a part of the Bitcoin network because we are the, the endpoint uh, interpreter of the code. We're the only part, we're the only part of it. All the numbers ex uh, 
predated us. Like all the numbers were already there. Mathematics was there all along. It's just the perception. Uh, like we, we are literally the bitcoins. We are literally the network. All the computers <laughs> are just fancy calculators who help us don't trust verify. Uh, so we are the thing. Like, and that's why a Satoshi is not just data. It's, it's information for like, <laughs> no, uh, like, uh, yeah. So, so there's a definition of the word information, which is like, it's d- data that makes sense to, to, to a person. And I, I would say Satoshi is even more than that. So, so it's 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 literally a part of you and me, and uh, it cannot be copied like other data can be copied at all. It's the ability to move the Satoshi that is the Satoshi. The information about the asset is the asset, and so on. Yeah, I wrote an article when I was working at, at Fast Bitcoins that was had a similar point, which is that um, the only if the only fun if if Bitcoin doesn't exist while it's static. If the only function that it has is to move or to change hands, to change addresses, um, then it only sort of—it's like an emergent property that comes into existence at the point that it moves, because um, it's the only function that it serves. It can only move, and so while it's static, it's gone. And the only thing that, when you say I, I, I own two bitcoins worth of UTXOs, you're just owning optionality to bring those bitcoins back into existence at the point at which they move. If you if you're seeing it as we are the bitcoins, then they could exist even when they're not moving. I've never seen I've never seen it as that way. I I, I say that they do because of a uh, a thing that uh, Mises points out uh, about mo- uh, money is never Id- idle. Uh, money always serves a purpose, even when it doesn't change hands, because because it uh, provides its owner with a sense of security and. Uh, uh, more optionality to do more stuff, and uh, therefore lower time preference. So, so it always serves a, fu- a function for its holder, and especially when when they're a part of you. So, like, yeah, I, I wrote an article about that, and I, I, and I had a talk about it and everything. And the, the the way I see it, the the miner is not the ASIC; it's the guy who decides to buy the ASIC and plug it in and run the code, because without that action, the the, the ASIC is nothing. And uh, and same thing with the nodes, and all the bitcoins reside within our heads because it's all about keeping secrets. That all all the private keys are kept in a head somewhere, in someone's head somewhere. There is no private key that is. So the location of a hardware wallet, the location of a seed phrase, that's also a secret. It's also in someone's head. Right in this, yeah, in the same way that like numbers exist in your head, you can write them on a whiteboard, but you're you're drawing symbols, but the actual numbers aren't on the whiteboard. Then it's the interpretation that gives the numbers their their meaning or the symbols their meaning. So the numbers only same applies to Bitcoin. And here's a fun. This was told to me as a joke, uh, <laughs> but but I love it so much. Bitcoin has always existed. It's just that the hash rate was zero before two thousand and nine. Which That's is act. Provably true. All the numbers were there. So, so it's absolutely 100% true. In that case, what, what, so AI cannot become con- conscious then, right? If it's just the interpretation of symbols that exist only within your side, there is sort of a, what if the blank canvas of reality is an interpretive, like a driver on a computer that interprets whatever material world is. And that's what gives rise to the human experience. But then humans develop their own interpretive structures that give 
about that give meaning to things like numbers and binary. And then through the increasing complexification of that binary code, it then begins to resemble the humans that interpret it. But if it's just, if it only has meaning in the same way that Bitcoin doesn't exist, if you take the humans out, if you take the humans out of the AI, then the AI isn't, doesn't exist either. It's the interpretation of it, right? I don't know why I've got balloons flying up. <laughs> Love it. But yeah, uh, artificial intelligence, like in my mind, it's it's not intelligence at all because it lacks agency. It uh, it doesn't have free will and therefore it's not intelligent. Uh, so it's it's good at guessing what word comes next. It's really damn good at that, but it's it. I don't see it ever developing a a mind of its own, uh, not anytime soon, anyway. And uh, I I think we're searching for the, if if we truly want to make a a, a a sentient AI. I think we're looking in the wrong direction. Like I I think we're searching in the wrong place for that because I I I think it. Uh, it has so much to do with uh, felt uneasiness and uh, why you perform actions at all, why you feel an urge to do something is because you you um, imagine a state of the future in which you have done a thing and that state is preferable to, to you, to what you live in right now. And how can a computer ever do that? Uh, how could how could an algorithm ever do that? I just don't see that but, happening. But I but how do you know that you're doing that if you can't define you? <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. And how, cause pain is again, a, re- a re- relationary thing. And if you don't, if you can't define you or can't prove that you is something separate than other, it could all be illusory. And then for pain is just a consistent pattern rather than a actual thing. Absolutely. All these dichotomies might be false at the, on a very basic layer. But they can still be useful. I, I can still like use the term you and use the term felt uneasiness in a context right, yeah, that makes sense. And like, I'm, I'm just trying to like explain why I don't think that uh, AIs will ever become sentient it is because of this motivating factor that acting human beings have to, to do conscious things, to do, to engage in purposeful behavior rather than just acting on instinct. Yeah, uh, yeah, that makes sense. And I do think that's real. I don't know how it works. I don't know how it emerges. I don't know where it comes from, but I do think it's real. Hmm. Hey guys, maybe to bring this back into a more uh, concrete side of things. <laughs> because this has been, uh, Boring. Uh, <laughs> this was great. I uh, enjoyed um, listening in. Um, but hey, Angela, maybe you could um, uh, talk about what are your plans in the near term? Like, like I know you've mentioned your 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 video agency, but but what what are you trying to do with that, and uh, what what are your goals in the near term? So in the near term, it's just um, I'm bootstrapping it uh, myself, really. So it's just getting initial cash flow and stuff so that I can get out more into the world. Um, I think um, I'm looking forward to Madeira. Um, that should be fun. And going to some conferences next year, hopefully. I want to get to Nashville as well, but I don't know if that's happening yet. But yeah, that would be really good. And then, and then, yeah, just just working towards the idea of a documentary. I want to. It's not, I haven't spoken to him yet, but I want to get in touch with um, Gladstein and the Human Rights Foundation, and eventually, like my sort of 
mid to long term plan is to do some sort of documentary piece that brings the idea of the currency caste system to a form that is digestible to most people. That is something that I would love to do uh, longer term. I know you asked near term, but but yeah, everything that I do near term is sort of to work towards that. So hi, Alex, if you're, li- if you're listening. Fantastic. Um, yeah, I, I think this is a, a good point to wrap it up. So anywhere you want to direct our, our listeners to, Angelo, like uh, where can we find you on the internet if we want more? So my Twitter is my, my, my Twitter's at Angelo underscore Summers, spelled S-O-M-E-R-S. And the, the website is, um, for the agency is permissionlessltd.com. So I don't know when this is going out, but the sh- website should be up and running by then. And yeah, that's just about the only two I'd really want to direct anyone to. <laughs> okay. This has been the Freedom Footprint Show. Don't forget to like, subscribe and brush your damn teeth and, uh, see you next time, folks. Thank you for having me. Cheers, guys.